This podcast is sponsored by Aurora Packaging Solutions, a global packaging solutions provider leading the transition to a more sustainably packaged future. They specialize in developing packaging and visual communication solutions that reduce the impact on the environment and bring sustainability goals to life. With a focus on partnership and service, they create a custom solution for your business. To learn more, please visit www.ororapackaging.com. Welcome to Sustainable Packaging with Corey Connors. Today's guest is Mr. Andrew Almack, the CEO of Plastics for Change. How are you, sir? Great to be here. Such an honor to be on the show. Oh, thank you so much. I'm a fan of what you're doing. I'm excited to explain it to the community here. But can you tell us a little bit about your background first, and then we'll talk about Plastics for Change? Yeah, so my background, I've been doing this my whole life, actually. Wow. I studied it as an honors thesis in university after doing some traveling in Southeast Asia. And I've just been hooked on this correlation between <laughs> plastic waste and a lot of the social issues and that exist in, in the supply chain. So my background is, yeah, I've been obsessed with this my whole career. <laughs> some call it an obsession, some call it a passion, but I support them all because they're all necessary in this world. We have to have passionate people like you to make positive changes here. So let's talk about plastics for change. What is it? What do you do? So we do two things. One is that we connect the waste collectors at the base of the supply chain with global brands and manufacturers. And then we help, the second thing is like, we help the global brand global brands and manufacturers make the transition away from fossil fuel-based plastics to ethically sourced recycled plastics through fair trade, verified supply chains. That's excellent. And such an important part of this community. And I think with the onset of extended producer responsibility, your job is going to get even more popular and important where brands are absolutely needing to and required to use higher post-consumer recycled content. Is that what you're seeing? I I certainly hope so. I think in particular, living in, in South India now for the last seven and a half years well just the amount of plastic being consumed has doubled in the last five years so you can imagine the infrastructure the municipalities trying to build all the infrastructure and systems if you're if the size of the problem is doubling every five years it's pretty hard to keep pace with that and that's the reason why most of these emerging economies don't have collection systems it's they just can't keep pace with it and they also don't have the tax revenue and as a result what we see is that 58 percent the 58 percent of all the plastic that's collected comes from the informal sector like Mm. boggling they're the backbone of the of the global recycling system. And they also are, we're talking about people that are making their, their careers picking up the discarded plastics. And they're not, they're not relying on taxpayer funding or funding from the government to go and do this. They're doing this service. There's some intrinsic value to the plastic. And they're often some of the poorest people in all society. Yeah. The people at the base of the supply chains in these emerging markets, they have a Often they have a lot of barriers to formal employment and you can kind of, you can kind of think of plastic waste as like a, 
if you're really down and out, let's say you haven't had the opportunity for an education, or a lot of the times we see migrant workers move to a city because they've they had crop failure or something happened and they need to just start working right away. Well, they've there's no barrier to entry necessarily to going and picking up the discarded plastic. So a huge scope for a social Very true. I heard Dave Ford speak on the global south and how hundreds or even thousands of people around the world are collecting waste as a job. And they're very, he interviewed several of them on his speech. This was at Waste Expo. And he he interviewed several of them and they said, I love this. This is great. I'm making a great wage. I'm outside. I'm collecting things. Yes, it's dirty work, but it's profitable and it's a great career for me and my family. So I think you're exactly right. It's an opportunity for employment. It's an opportunity. But like you said, we're going to need more consistency here and we're going to need to get the governments involved with the process. Is that what you're seeing happening? Well, I think that it's not always such a rosy picture. Yeah. I think that, I mean, I'm, I have so much respect for Dave Ford and yeah. what he's done for the community. But Corey, if you ever have a chance to come and visit, we'll do the waste picker challenge. So yeah. you come and you have to wake up in the morning, you have to keep your wallet, your phone, your keys, everything, keep <laughs> it in your hotel or wherever you're staying. Yeah. And then the challenge is how long does it take you to buy your first meal by picking up the discarded plastics? Yeah. And it's it's not easy. It's humbling. Yeah. I try to do this once a year just to keep keep a reminder to myself that it's hard work. And I'd say a lot of these people at the base of the supply chain are not doing it because it's their preferred career path. They're doing it oh, sure. out of barriers to barriers to other opportunities. Now, as you go up the chain and as you get into business owners and scrap shops, then you see there's a lot of pride that they do take in their work. And I think the awareness now of their contribution to society is also growing, which is really great to see. And having that, giving them that voice for the role they're serving is also a key part of it. Yeah, very true. I think there's lots of opportunity and there's lots of challenges. And more and more people are going to understand this process as being essential. So I think those people will see more value from the plastics they collect, I hope, in the future as these higher PCR target come to fruition. So when you say you're connecting people and brands, how does that work? Let's say I'm a brand, I call Plastics for Change. What do you do to help us? Well, it starts by understanding the needs of our different industry partners, brands and manufacturers and recycling companies that process the, the material. So it's so for example, if uh, Corey Connor Inc. needs yeah. 100 tons of HDP plastic every month for making making your widgets, then we'd understand what those needs are. And then we'd use all the data that we have. We have over 830,000 data points now. And we'd say, well, this is exactly how you do that. You'd have to connect this many waste collectors that pick up the plastic with this many scrap shops. Where in India, we call them kabadiwalas. These are like the neighborhood level, small mom and pop shops where the waste collectors sell it. Mm. Those scrap shops issue a buy-sell transaction on our app. And then we pick it up with our trucks. We bring it to the Plastics for Change centers where all the plastic is sorted and graded on conveyor belts, handpicked mm. for the recipe. So we'd say only this material is good for Corey Connor's recipe. And, and all that quality assurance data is also logged on our app. And then 
we plug it into the existing supply chain. And it's really our job to ensure that it's delivered on time in full as per the project plan, but also reverse engineering the social impact. So in every community, we have two or three social service workers working full-time to avail access based on a need assessment, but all of the philanthropic services such as childhood, nutrition, access mm. to education and creches and going deep into the communities for the, the kids, the waste pickers kids, yeah. access to the other common things in the need assessment is getting the right IDs and access to the existing government schemes. You'd think that would be easy, but it's often really hard <laughs> for a lot of these folks. Okay. And and then also eventually getting to the place where they have uh, a bank account and can start on our financial literacy program. So it's taking a really holistic approach to development, but it's all based on like being able to pay them a fair, consistent income every day. Because if you, they can have that... The predictability is key. I think globally, like the informal sector is unregulated. It's highly fragmented and it's based on people cheating and lying and stealing because there's no buddy, there's no authority. So we're really flipping that whole paradigm and saying to the stakeholders, okay, the more social impact that the scrap shop creates, the more they're able to participate in our incentive system and it takes a lot of behavior change, working with the scrap shops, human relationships, also our app. We track, in addition to the buy-sell transactions, we also have an incentive system, a gamification, so that the more they're able to comply with the fair trade principles, the more incentives they get. And it takes six to nine months to actually get to a place where we're then able to bring in all these third-party auditors we did eight audits last year in person with third-party agencies to wow. validate the claims and to really show like the journey that we take these stakeholders on. That's amazing. Do you have any numbers for us as far as like the number of people that are collecting or the maybe the quantity of material that's been diverted from the environment to your facilities? Yeah, so last year we recycled just shy of 5,000 tons collected. Wow. And and then we hope to double that again. We've been able to triple our growth for three consecutive years. Congratulations. Which has been, which has been awesome and wow. have an amazing team here in India. We've logged several thousand of these scrap shops onto our platform. And then every scrap shop serves approximately 15 waste collectors. Mm. And so the scale is just incredible. I think it's estimated at least 20 million people are doing this. Like 20 million people, that's the whole whole world's largest army of people going. Yeah. yeah. Incredible. And the need is going to continue to grow, unfortunately, until we get our act together and figure out some different materials to use. But yeah. What uh, what would you say is the most common thing that comes in? Is it bottles? Is it film? What do you see most of the time? Excellent question. So the scrap shops, we typically see the by far the biggest volume is PT bottles. It's generally one ton of PT for every sorry for every one ton of PT. There's five hundred tons, five hundred kilograms of polyolefins, and then there's also like. It's referred to as CADAC, but like the rigid dark plastic, which has a lot of ABS, everything that's mm-hmm. lesser volume. And then films are even less than that. That is what oh. we see. 
Interesting. What about the sachets? I know that was a big issue in India. Are the collectors able to get any of those because they're so small or do they leave them? It is some, it's something super, super challenging. We've been putting a lot of our R&D budget into this. We found a product market fit where we've made 30 houses. So we've taken sachet, compressed it in these panel boards and actually built 30 houses for people that we're just living in mud. We, we went and like we were able to do this through a CSR project. Shout out to Kimberly Clark. We yeah. uh, were able to make these, uh, these houses. The challenge is that you can imagine try, if you're a waste collector, the number of times you have to bend over to pick up a sachet pack, right. you just can't earn the, the calorific value to feed yourself the amount of calories you burn yep. picking up versus, yeah, it doesn't pencil out. And I think that's the sachets are something where the, that's where like you need a government formalized collection system for that. It needs to be yeah. tax payer revenue or a different kind of EPR scheme to really tackle that one. Hopefully, we're putting more and more of our R&D budgets into creating markets for everything. I, my personal view is sachet packs the best thing, of course, is to try to eliminate that and design a different packaging. But then there's yeah. a real role for bioplastics when it comes to sachets as well, in my opinion. Now, I don't yeah. say that for any of the rigid plastics that are, are able to be recycled because that actually hurts the recycling system. But it, when it comes for little small format sachet packs, I'd say the innovation in bioplastics is, is exciting for that application. That's a very good point. I just got back from APEC and we were speaking about exactly that. What are the best uses for biofilms? What are the best case for that kind of packaging materials? And what are the barriers to entry? These things and these composting facilities just aren't coming on board as fast enough to make it a sustainable solution yet. So that makes a lot of sense having sachets be made out of bioplastics. Great point. Yeah. And we're seeing it. We're already seeing it as something that's getting traction. It'd be nice to have a little bit of a push from a regulatory perspective on that as well. In addition to the, well, we're seeing such amazing traction already in terms of mandating the use of recycled plastic. And I also would love just to highlight like the job creation factor, right? Like don't think about it as like, from the environmental perspective, like that's very key, curving CO2 emissions, if super important, but like the amount of jobs that you create for every one ton of recycled plastic that goes through the supply chain versus every one ton of uh, new virgin plastic that comes online is a, I saw a study in Europe that it was estimating it was like eight to 10 times as much. So in emerging economies, I don't know, but it's definitely larger than that. That's exciting. And that's good news. And you're right. We need to collect this material and use it to figure out the right scheme, the right EPR or deposit system or something like that to make it valuable. You said you have plans to double this year or next year or every year. Can you walk us through that? How does that work? Are you just in India now or are you talking about expansion to other countries? Yeah, we're proud to be expanding into the Philippines and West Africa this year. Wow. We've recognized that it's the same supply chain, the informal sectors everywhere in the global south, and it's the same mm-hmm. sort of barriers that the waste collectors are facing with fragmentation, unorganized sector, exploitation. So so yeah, we want to replicate this model as, as fast as possible to get 
more and more waste collectors connected and helping to catalyze more and more brands to, to make that transition from fossil fuels to recycled plastic. And I think one of the key things that I've, I've recognized is that a lot of the industry has goals. They'll have meetings and strategy and they'll set goals. But when you really get into it, a lot of them don't have a plan. And when I say a plan, I mean like details, like what exactly needs to happen for you to hit that goal. And that's because at the brand level, they don't buy plastic. They're used to buying the SKU. So we found that the brands that are really actually getting involved in the plan, the detailed plans of all the tiers that need to happen to reach their goals those are the ones that are crushing their sustainability commitments. And the ones that aren't are frankly like missing it because they, it doesn't happen unless you, you do all the doing. That's it. You have to do the doing. That's exactly right. You have to go through and say, okay, where are we going to source this? And how are we going to make sure? And like you said, you had eight audits last year. That's, that's impressive. I think a lot of issues with the, some of these recyclers are a veil of secrecy almost. And maybe that's not intentional, but it's how it feels. And so it's exciting to see your your sharing the data and opening the books and opening the doors to outside people to say, hey, this is what we're doing. What do you think? Well, one of the one of the features I'm really excited about is we now have a live dashboard. So for brands that have a supply chain dedicated to them, we can give them a custom dashboard in real time so they can see all of the different philanthropic services that are happening, all of the customized impact KPIs in tier seven or eight of their supply chain in real time. So that's something that we've worked super hard to actually pull that all together. But it's incredible living in 2023, data and technology and information flow, it's incredible the things you can do through a supply chain. Hmm. You That's excellent and very exciting. You mentioned employment. I saw yesterday a friend of mine posted, Africa has the highest unemployment rate in the world. So moving to West Africa, I think for you, is going to be a great source of new jobs for them. And that's exciting. Yeah, and also just, accelerating that journey right just the populations the slogan for our expansion is follow the babies right because you want to if you wait until the population is mature and has all their disposable income and you have to actually set up the infrastructure before that happens so that the systems are in place you can't wait it's too late so yeah it's a huge opportunity in, in in africa as well and well and then even just you look at the scope in Latin and South America, in Southeast Asia, it most even the all the stands, like it's the majority of it's still informal. That's a really good point. And do you think that I've heard several people say in the past that we will eventually be harvesting raw materials from landfills? Do you think, do you see that as ever happening? We at Plastics for Change have a policy not to source directly from landfills. <laughs> of course. It's quite hard yeah. to achieve our compliance standards and we want to try to prevent yeah. it from going to the landfills. No, I wasn't saying that you would do that. I was saying, do you think that would happen? Do you think that's possible? I, I've been fortunate to be on some, actually on some panels with experts in paralysis and that mm-hmm. like, you, you take it not with the technology that exists today. Is my understanding. Now, in the future, when we're really running out of resources, it's 20, (laughs) 
2200 and yeah. there's no more oil well i don't know what's going on probably right. they have some technology to do that <laughs> the <laughs> the landfill owners are the are playing the long game i think <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean harvesting methane from landfills and potentially harvesting raw materials these are all very interesting ideas but like you said i that's not our focus today yeah and the urgency is on let's address these uh, these sustainable development goals now like let's we 2030 is around the corner we're going to yeah. have more like the mic like the microplastics are a lot of the time it's also burning right mm-hmm. burning and dumping which then releases the, the toxins into the air and instead of going into the landfill it's going into the air and where does that go well most of that is sequestered by the oceans and then the bias it's a big mass we really need to accelerate the progress and bring the recycling systems to these emerging economies at lightning speed. And I think that the inspiration that I have is that we have fair trade agriculture in almost every country, right? There's people working on this, connecting farmers. There's the, We've seen the garment sector in India go through a rapid formalization with standards and policies and bringing, bringing audits to the system. Bringing, instead of, if you go, if you look back even 10, 20 years ago, it w- the human rights violations were atrocities. So I have hope that it's going. The sector is going to formalize quite aggressively because consumers are also wanting to purchase from brands that are taking action. And especially even just in the last few years, we've really seen a lot of the brands be- say, "Okay, we're not going to just ignore this." I think again, it's like fifty-eight percent of all the plastic picked up. And I got to give a shout out to the body shop as well. They were the ones that first really, we took their systems from fair trade agriculture. It took three years of work to actually achieve their standard before we launched it. And they were really, I think, the first brand that stuck their neck out and said, hey, there's this huge informal sector and taking these guys on a journey. And now a lot of brands have followed suit as well. Wow, that's excellent and very exciting to hear really looking forward to the future of plastics for change and what you'll accomplish i think we should do another episode here in six months or a year to see what's happening next but thanks again for being on the show andrew really appreciate it thanks so much it's been such a pleasure thank you landsberg aurora for sponsoring if you're listening make sure you subscribe so you don't miss the next episode and stay tuned for more thank you this episode is sponsored by specrite the first purpose-built platform for specification management. So much has changed when it comes to packaging, and there's a new book to help you stay ahead of the curve, The Evolution of Products and Packaging, written by longtime packaging executive Mr. Matthew Wright, helps you unpack industry trends and explains how you can use data to drive packaging innovation and sustainability. Download your free copy today at specwrite.com backslash book. That's S-P-E-C. R-I-G-H-T dot com backslash book.